Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches us from our Behold Emmanuel series. All right, so we're beginning a, a series from now until our Christmas service on Christmas Eve called Behold Emmanuel. So this is week one of Behold Emmanuel. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and we'll see what the Lord will speak to us. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of opening your word and, and thinking about Christmas, thinking about Christ, the Christ of Christmas, thinking about the incarnation and Emmanuel, God with us, and the significance of what that means. And I pray, God, that as we head closer and closer into uh, the Christmas season, the time in which we, we celebrate as family and friends the birth of our Savior, our God, I pray that, that you would prepare our hearts for that time, that time of celebration. And we thank you for what you're going to speak to our hearts this morning as we look in your word, as we look in the Gospel of Matthew. And I pray, God, that you would speak to every heart today, that we would behold Emmanuel this morning. I pray this morning you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. We're going to look for the next several weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, culminating in a Christmas Eve Sunday service that's going to look at a message about the wise men. Wise men still seek him. So this morning, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Let's read. Let's read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of Uriah, excuse me, the father of David the king, and David was a father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealatiel, and Shealatiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of, of Achim, and Achim, the father of, of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the, to, to the Christ, 14 generations. Genealogy of Jesus Christ from Abraham to Jesus. You know, the truth is, is that judgment is what all men deserve. Judgment is what all men and women deserve. All of humanity deserves judgment, deserves judgment. All of humanity is under the curse of sin. All of humanity is under the curse of sin and are reaping the consequences of the curse of sin. Not only the curse of sin, but the consequences of individual sins that we commit. We are under the curse of, 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 of sin and sowing and reaping because of sin. And sin is, is a problem. Sin will not only impact your life here and now, but, but sin, dying in the state of sin and rebellion against God, will impact eternity in your life. And all of humanity, all of humanity, the generations that were before Christ and the generations that have come after Christ, all of humanity has to have their sin problem dealt with. Because without sin being dealt with, everyone is lost. Everyone is under a curse. But what the genealogy of Jesus Christ shows us is that there is hope. What the genealogy of Jesus Christ shows us is, is Emmanuel. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. After the genealogy, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Behold, Emmanuel. Behold, Emmanuel. And all these generations, these generations that have come before Christ and the ones that have come after Christ, behold, Emmanuel, looking to Christ. Christ is the answer to sin and to sin's curse and to the judgment that sin brings. And this is what we're going to look at. This is the primary purpose of the gospel of Matthew. The primary purpose of the gospel of all four gospels is to point to Christ. But in particular, Matthew, in his account of the gospel, he has one primary purpose that he is after in his writing. He is presenting Christ as king, as the Messiah king. He's establishing the fact that Jesus has the rightful claim to the kingly line of the Messiah that was to come. Jesus is king. This is what, this is what Matthew is about. This is why he starts with a genealogy. Interesting to note here, since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, no genealogies exist that can trace an ancestry of any Jew now living. Since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there's no genealogies that can trace back, that, that, that can be traced back. And so for those Jews, listen, that are still awaiting their Messiah, his lineage to David could never be established. It can never be established. Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David. That's powerful. He's the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David. And this is what we're going to look at. We're starting, behold Emmanuel, we're starting with a genealogy. And the genealogy is not just words that are names that are hard to pronounce. There, there's purpose and there's meaning behind it. There's a reason why Matthew started with a genealogy. Matthew has a genealogy. We just read it. And Luke 
has a genealogy. What, what, what does Matthew's genealogy establish? Well, it establishes this. Jesus has legal claim as a descendant of David, as a descendant of David through his adopted father, Joseph. So that's what Matthew is focusing on, that Jesus has a legal claim to be Messiah because he comes through the a lineage of Joseph, who is his adopted father. Luke's gene- genealogy, you can look in Luke chapter 3, it establishes Jesus as a blood descendant of David through Mary. Right? So on both sides, there is adopted father Joseph, because he was not born of the seed of man. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth. But then through the blood of Mary, through, through her womb, he, she, Mary is in the line of David. So he's a blood descendant. He's adopted legally into the line of David through Joseph, but through blood, through Mary. So, so what is significant about genealogies? Why study genealogies? Why think about them? Well, I think some important things to, to ponder about genealogies. Here's what they do. Genealogies place the stories recorded, the names recorded to actual history that can be verified. This person was born, and this person gave birth to this person, gave birth to this person, and gave birth to this person. This person was born and died, but, but had a lineage that passed on to that person. This is actual history. Real people who lived and married and gave birth to children, who lived and married and gave birth to children, and their lives are recorded in history. This is why a, gene- a genealogy is important, a family tree. Where do you come from? Who are your family Right? You are a real person living in time and space. And, and this is what makes the Bible so unique. It, it, it talks about real people who lived in time and space in history. And it can be verified that they lived and they died and they passed on a heritage and they lived and they died. This is what is powerful about a genealogy. And this is what I think is so important to think about. The genealogies in Matthew and in Luke established that Jesus is not just a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus lived. He lived. He was born. It's verified. It's not just a fairy tale. It's what you talk about. We talk about, you hear about the story of Christmas. Or you could say the story of Jesus. It's really not a story. Stories, stories are made up. Stories can be made up and can be fake. Like the story of Santa. Or the story of the Easter bunny. Or the, or the story of some fictional character. It's not a story. It's the account of Jesus. Christmas is about the account of a baby that was born in a manger in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago that can be traced back all the way to Adam. The genealogy of in Matthew traces Jesus from Abraham to Jesus, to his birth. But the, the genealogy in Luke starts backwards and goes from Adam all the way to Jesus. So the genealogies are about a real baby that was born that can be traced all the way back to Adam. This is real history. This is real life. It's not a made-up story. It's not a made-up story. Jesus is the only one who has legitimate claim to be the Messiah, King of Israel. And genealogies also in Scripture teach us that God was doing something in history. God's doing something. He's about something. He has divine purposes. He's unfolding things and his purposes throughout human history. They teach us that what we read is real history, but it also teaches us that God is doing something. Genealogies, in short, teach us that history is his story. History is God's story. 
This is what scripture shows us. This is what the genealogies in Matthew show us. And so, so what, what do we see? There's, there's so many other things to see in these genealogies. And this is what we're going to do. We're, we're going to squeeze out a couple of things from this genealogy that I think teach us more. There's so much more to see. There's so many things we could have talked about here. But since I haven't preached in three weeks, we're only going to look at two. We're only going to look at two. We could have had three, four, five and we could be serving lunch today, but we're going we're gonna to have you have lunch after the sermon today, and we're going to look at two things. What do we see? Other than this, it's real history. It teaches a history as God's story, but what else do we see? We'll look at two powerful realities that are sitting in plain sight within the genealogy of Jesus. It's in plain sight. You just got you to see it. You advice to see it. So what do we see? Well, here's the first thing that we see in the genealogy. First thing is that we see the seemingly slow and sometimes imperceptible purposes of God. Do you see it? The seemingly slow and sometimes imperceptible purposes of God. Look, look back, Matthew 1, 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. From Abraham to Jesus. What, what, what are all these timelines? Just to take note, not, not all the names that are listed from Abraham to Jesus are listed in this genealogy. If it was, I would have been reading a lot longer. Okay? So that not every, every man or every woman that was in the line of Jesus was mentioned from Abraham to Jesus. But when you're looking at a time frame, from Abraham to Jesus is over 1,900 years. 1,900 years. Luke's genealogy traces backward from Jesus back to the beginning with Adam in Genesis. So how long was it from Adam to the birth of Jesus? Approximately 4,000 years. So you're thinking 4,000 years from Adam to Christ, the seemingly slow and sometimes imperceptible purposes of God. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. a long time with a lot of people in between, a lot of living and a lot of dying between Adam and Jesus. The seemingly slow and imperceptible purposes of God. So how old are you here today? How old are you? I'm 42. I'll be 43 in February. Any, any 16-year-olds in the room right now? 23? Any 23-year-olds? Yeah. 56, 75, 85, 90, how old are you? How long has your family been in America? Well, I know your family hasn't been in America longer than 247 and three quarter years, right? Because July of next year, America will be 248 years old. So just keep this, in, think about this, think about this. The, the, the seemingly slow and imperceptible purposes of God through 1900 years. Think about 248 years. Do you know who came before you in America or pre-America 240 years ago, 250 years ago, 300 years ago? Where'd you come from? Time, time. This is a long time, 1900 years from Abraham to Jesus, 4,000 from Adam to Jesus. Think about the 1900 years, 4,000 years. God is at work. God is fulfilling his plan. God is always at work. He's always 
at work. Even when we can't perceive it, this is what genealogies show us. He's always at work. The promises of God passed down from generation to generation, from Abraham to Jesus, from Abraham, from Abraham. Matthew started with Abraham. You remember Abraham in Genesis 12? God made a promise to Abraham. 1900 years before the birth of Jesus, God made a promise to Abram. To Abram. You remember the promise? Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram, in you, in you, within your loins, within your seed, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Abram was confused and said, God said, look at the stars. Can you count them? That's how numerous the seed from your loins will be. In you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. The fulfillment of this promise only, listen, and just think about this. The fulfillment of that promise to Abraham only began to have the pinnacle of its fulfillment over 1,900 years later. God made a promise to Abraham, and 1,900 years later, not 42, not 55, not 75, not 248, 1,900 years later, the pinnacle of the promise that God made to Abram was fulfilled in a manger in Bethlehem. The seemingly slow and imperceptible purposes of God. He's always at work. The purpose of the promise made to him comes onto the scene in the manger in Bethlehem. And only through Christ, this is the purpose of the promise, only through Christ would all or can all the nations of the earth be blessed. The long-awaited promise was hidden in the son of Abraham. It was hidden in the son of Abraham. Matthew 1, 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brother Abraham was the father of of Isaac. God gives Abram a promise, and he gives him a son, and he thinks, I can imagine, he thinks, what about the stars? I don't know about the stars. I don't know about the sands of the sea, but I know I've got a son named, named Isaac, and God gave me a promise that through my seed all the nations would be blessed, and he gives him Isaac. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and shadows of the promise are seen in the provision God gives to Abraham on the sacrificial mountain. You remember God told Abram, go to the mountain and sacrifice your son. What happened? Genesis 22, he said to Abraham, who was obeying the Lord, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You see it? The picture of the promise was caught in the thicket. The picture of the promise, the pinnacle of the provision was Christ. And in that thicket, on that mountain, on the mountain of obedience, on the mountain of sacrifice, God showed the picture of the promise. Over 1,900 years before Christ would come, God showed the picture of the promise, the pinnacle, which is Christ. 
The promises of God, the purposes of God continues from generation to generation. It continues moving forward for the glory of his name amongst the nations. 1,900 years from the promise to Abram to the fulfillment in Christ. And the fulfillment can seem slow, can it not? The fulfillment can seem slow. The time that passes can seem without meaning or purpose. Generation after generation, long after Abraham was dead, Christ comes. The fulfillment of the promise. 2 Peter 3 tells us this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. He doesn't judge time the way that we judge time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew shows us the history of God's purposes working in and through the lives of those that are listed. From one generation to the next, God is working. In one family to the next, God is working. What appears to be slow is God's perfect timing. What appears to be, God, you've forgotten. It's his perfect timing. God, what are you doing? It's his perfect timing. God, why? 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 It's his perfect timing. God, you gave me this promise, and now you're asking me to sacrifice. No, wait, it's my perfect timing. Obedience, obedience, patience, because God has a perfect timing. Timing, God's timing, it never fails. God's timing is perfect. His purposes should never be questioned because he knows the end from the beginning. His timing is perfect. There was a father and a son that farmed a piece of land. And several, time each, several times each year, they would load their vegetables into an ox-drawn cart and go to the nearest city to sell their produce. And the trip was marked by a lot of disagreement between the father and the son. And here's the reason why there was a lot of disagreement between the father and son as they harvested their vegetables and loaded it onto the ox-drawn cart and headed to the nearest city to sell their vegetables. The son was always in a hurry, and the father was never in a hurry. The son was always ready to get there because, because they wanted, he wanted to get there to get the best spot in the city market so they could make the most profit for their labor. But the father, the father would always say this to the son, take it easy, you'll last longer. Take it easy, you'll last longer. So they get, father and son get going, they load up all the vegetables, the ox-drawn cart is headed towards the big city that they're going to sell their vegetables in. The son is in a hurry. He wants to get there. His son starts whipping the ox with a stick. Starts whipping the ox with a stick, and, and the dad's trying to take a nap in the cart, and the son keeps waking him up by whipping the, the ox, and, and the dad says, son, take it easy, you'll last longer. Dad closes his eyes and falls asleep while the son's anxious about getting where he needs to go. And, and next thing you know, the father wakes up and he's coming by a house and it's, it's his brother's house. It's, it's, he, he hadn't seen his brother in a long time, so he tells his son, hey, pull off right here at, at, at Uncle Bob's house. We wanna, haven't seen him in a long time. And the son says, no, Dad, we're going to be late. You haven't seen him in a while. You're going to want to drink community coffee and eat band-aids. It's time to go father says take it easy son you'll last longer an hour later an hour later they leave the uncle's house and the son is oh, so upset they get back in the cart and they, they go down the road and they come to a, a fork in the road and if and if you go if you go if you go to the go to go to go to go if you go to the right it's slower you go to the left it's faster 
But the father says, hey, son, go to the right. The scenery's better to the right. The son can't stand it. He's so upset. Let's go to the left. It's much faster. And they keep going down the road. And it's only supposed to take about 24 hours to, to get there. And the father is tired. So he tells the son, hey, won't you stop right here? Look at this scenery. Let's stop. Let's watch the sunset. We'll get there tomorrow. And the son is like, no, we're going to miss the best spot. And the son says, son. And the father says, son, take it easy. You'll last longer. They lay down. They take a rest next morning. They get back on the road. The son is anxious. He's up at the crack of dawn. He's ready to go. But one mile later, they come to another cart. The cart is stuck in a ditch. And the son says, dad, no, I know you want to stop. Don't, don't stop. Let's keep going. We're already 24 hours late. We're never going to get the right spot. And the father looks at the son. Let's stop. You might be in a ditch one day. Not long after, they pulled the other cart out of the ditch. A loud flash of lightning burst in the horizon. And they don't know what was happening, but it was really startling. And they make their way on towards the city that they were headed to sell their vegetables it was late afternoon. The father and son finally made it to the outskirts of the city. As they arrived to a large hill overlooking the city, they stared for a long time overlooking the city. Neither one spoke. And finally, the son spoke up. He says, Dad, now I understand. So the father and son turned their cart around and slowly walked away from what once had been the city of Hiroshima. Wait, stay faithful, be patient. You don't know what is, can seem like a delay, what can seem like God is, God is withholding and he's, he's, he's not being faithful to his word. We must wait on the Lord. His perfect timing, his perfect purposes will be fulfilled in his time. The seemingly slow and imperceptible purposes of God. Psalm 27 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. In the land of the living, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The challenge to us today is to keep faithful, to stay the course. The Lord is at work. This is what the genealogies teach us. The Lord is at work even when we can't see it or recognize it. So here's a question to ponder. How many people in the lineage of Jesus knew that they were one day going to be in the family tree of the one who would die on a tree for the redemption of all who would believe? They didn't know. They had no idea. They're, they're, they could have been like that, son. God, what are you doing in my life? What's happening in my life? What's the purpose of my life? Well, one day, you're going to be talked about and preached about over 2,000 years later in Shriver, Louisiana, about being in the family tree of the Savior. So c consider this. Maybe God's purposes for your life are not about what he will do in you right now. Maybe God's purposes are primarily about who will come after you. Can you consider that? Can we think about that? The point is this, the purposes of God are not about us. And this is the story of the genealogies of Jesus, of the genealogy of Jesus. The seemingly slow and imperceptible purposes of God. God is always at work. He's fulfilling his purposes. But I believe always his purposes are about what comes after us. So questions to ponder as we, as we transition here to the next thought. How does God want to use your life right now to point others to Christ?
through the angel tree, through Toys for Tots, through your next door neighbor, in school, on your job? How does God want to use your life right now to point others to Christ? Here's another question to ponder. How are you investing into the next generation? Generation to generation to generation to generation to seemingly slow and imperceptible purposes of God. God is working his purposes in the earth. The purposes of in the earth are for the glory of the name of Christ. And how are we investing into the next generation? Yes, the current generation is important. Yes, uh, what God's doing in my life is important. What God's doing in the life of those that are, are further along is important. But, but are we investing in to the next generation? People are coming after me. Someone will stand in this pulpit after I'm gone. And we're responsible to herald God's word about pouring into the next generation. Somebody will come after you in your family. Somebody will come after you. And, and, and it's, it's our responsibility to take the, the, the baton of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to, to pass it to the next generation. The book of Judges, it says that there was a generation that rose after the, the, the children of God, the children of Israel that knew not God and knew not his ways. May that not be said of us. May we learn from the genealogy that we must pass on the purposes of God in our generation to the next generation. Amen? So what can a family tree teach us? What does the genealogy of Jesus show us? What do we see? We see the seemingly slow and sometimes imperceptible purposes of God. He is always at work. He's always at work fulfilling the purposes of his Christ and and the purpose of salvation. Secondly, here's what we see. We see the grace of God on display through prostitutes and kings. We see the grace of God on display through prostitutes and kings. Look look back to the genealogy. Matthew 1, 3 through 6. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And if you didn't know anything about genealogies, you'd think, well, what's the big deal about genealogies and women? Why, what, what, why, why highlight four women? There are some interesting reasons to highlight women in a genealogy because genealogies, especially ancient Jewish genealogies, it was unusual to find names of women in Jewish genealogies since names and inheritances came from fathers. So they just wouldn't have put women in a genealogy. But Matthew, by the providence of God, put women in the genealogy. And I think there's a profound reason because it shows us the grace of God through prostitutes and kings. These four women, consider these four women. There's lots of women you could put in the genealogy of Jesus that would have been in that family line. But God in his province chose four women. Listen, Tamar, first one. She was a Canaanite daughter of Judah. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and convinced Judah to sleep with her. Twin sons were born of this relationship, Perez and Zerah. Think about that. Tamar, disguising herself as a prostitute. And what about Rahab? 
Rahab did not pretend to be a prostitute like Tamar. It was her profession. She was a, a, a prostitute. And God spared her life in the destruction of Jericho because of her willingness to hide two Israelite spies. One fake prostitute, one real prostitute. And what about Ruth? Ruth was a Gentile and a Moabite widow. A Moabite widow. The Moabites were one of the fiercest enemies of God's people. A Moabitess is in the lineage of Jesus. By God's grace in her life through Boaz, Ruth became the grandmother of the great King David. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and now Bathsheba. Her name's not mentioned. Did you notice how she's mentioned? The wife of Uriah. Who's the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. Her name's not mentioned. She's called the wife of Uriah. She was an adult. She had an adulterous affair with King David. But by God's grace, she became the mother of Solomon and an ancestor of the Messiah. It's powerful. But what do these unlikely women in the family tree of Jesus point to? What do they point to? They point to the grace of God who is available to everyone and anyone. It points to the grace of God. They, they could have not been included. I, would you want, of all women, would you want those listed in your family line? How many of you have family members you think, I don't want them in my family line? You know, the crazy uncle. Well, just forget crazy uncle Steve. Like, just, if you're called Steve, I'm sorry. But crazy uncle, we're going to forget him. Right? Leave him out. <laughs> no one needs to know about him. Nobody needs to know about Tamar or Ruth. No one needs to know about Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. I, let's leave that out. Leave that out. God doesn't leave it out. Why? Because it shows us that the grace of God through Christ is available to everyone and to anyone. Listen, the inclusion of sinful men and women in the family tree of Jesus is a beautiful testimony to the ministry of Jesus Christ who is the friend of sinners. Not only is he the friend of sinners, but the people in his family tree are all sinners. Not only are sinners in the earthly line of Jesus' family tree, listen, but Jesus called sinners to follow him. Do you remember when Jesus called Matthew to follow him? The tax collector? Look at Matthew 9, and Jesus passed on from there. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9, Jesus passed on from there, saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. No rabbi would call a tax collector to follow him, associate with him. No upstanding rabbi of the Jews would want anything to do with a tax collector. But Jesus reclined at table in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Pharisees could not understand it. It, isn't, it, it boggles their mind. They would exclude all of these women from their family tree. They would exclude all the bad women, all the bad men, all the bad people. They wouldn't want nothing to do with them in their lineage, in their family tree. But all it was was sinners in his family tree. And so Jesus hung out with sinners. Those are his people. That's who he came for. He didn't come for those who thought they were righteous. He came for those who knew that they were not. 
The sick need a physician. The spiritually dead need a resurrection. Sinners need repentance. And Jesus came for those who are sick and spiritually dead because Jesus came for sinners. He came for sinners. Jesus came to show mercy. He came to show mercy. Jesus came to be mercy. The embodiment, the personification of mercy and grace. Listen, when God became man, when God took on flesh, it wasn't because he wanted to show his creation another way to be more righteous than they already were. When God put on flesh, it was because no one was righteous. When God put on flesh, it wasn't to show humanity another way to become more righteous than they already were. When God put on flesh, when Emmanuel, God with us, came 2,000 years ago in that manger, he came because nobody was righteous. No one in his family tree was righteous, and nobody that was living at his incarnation were righteous, and nobody that would come after should be you and I. No one would be righteous. That's why he came. Romans says, no one is righteous. No, not one. When God put on flesh, it was because everyone needed forgiveness. It was because everyone was a sinner. So the the question I, I thought about as I was thinking about this genealogy and this point about the grace of God on display through these sinful women, these sinful people in the genealogy, is, is, is this, here's the question, is it really shocking that the genealogy of Jesus is filled with sinful, imperfect people? No, it's not shocking. That's all he had to work with. That was it. I mean, Jesus, he, he couldn't have come and said, okay, I'm going to come only through a line of people that are perfectly righteous. Uh, you're not coming. It was the purpose of his incarnation. We were the purpose of his incarnation. Tamar was the purpose of his incarnation. Ruth was the purpose of his incarnation. Matthew was the purpose of his incarnation. He came for sinners. And our world today is broken. It's broken. People are broken. The political system is broken. Government is broken. The economy is on its way. It's broken. Families are broken. Marriages are broken. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Depression and suicide. Alcohol and drug abuse. Destroying families. People searching, listen, people searching for something to fill the void in their souls. Hear me, listen to me. As much as people try to throw off religion, as much as people try to to, to not want to believe that there is a God, as much as science, lying scientists try to disprove God in all of their scientific method, all they do is affirm God. As much as they try to do that and people try to lean on the crutch of science to say there is no God, people are no more filled and satisfied and healed and whole because of it. 
They're all the more empty. They're all the more lost. They're all the more searching. They're all the more looking for an answer to satisfy the longing of their heart, which is for contentment, for love, for peace, for true forgiveness. For forgiveness, there's a gnawing guilt that people live with in our world today. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to get rid of it. This is our world. No matter where you travel, no matter where you go, London, Paris, Shriver or Homa, New York City or Los Angeles, the Bible Belt or the places where the belt has no Bible, everywhere you go, people are broken. People chasing, listen, here's, here's what's interesting. People chasing after solutions that are only temporary. Temporary solutions. It's like Solomon. It's like Solomon. You remember Solomon? Solomon said, I had everything that my eyes desired, nothing that I wanted that I keep from myself. I pursued it all. I had all the women. I had all the money. I had all the possessions. I built for myself houses and vineyards. I bought land upon land. I had all the property and all the wealth, all the possessions and all the pleasures. And what was Solomon's conclusion at the end in Ecclesiastes 3? He said, in the end, all of it was meaningless, 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 like chasing after the wind. You ever tried to catch wind? You can't catch wind. Wind can't be caught. That's the point of what Solomon is getting at. And this is the problem in our society. People trying to catch something and grab hold of something that they can't get by their own effort. Now, you can be sitting here right now, and you could be thinking, oh, this is just naive religious talk. This is, no, listen, at, at, the, at the depth of who you are, when you leave here today, and if you leave here today apart from the peace that can only come from Christ, that longing and that emptiness will still be in your heart till you bow the knee and surrender to Christ. It will still be there. You know, in my mind's eye, I can see people hurrying here and there and everywhere trying to figure out what's wrong. Do you see it? To fix what's broken. To find something to satisfy. And hear, 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 hear me clearly. What our country needs most is not a political solution. It, politicians are just another, it's a, you know, unless they're Christian, right? It's just another person trying to fix something in a society that ultimately can't be fixed apart from Christ. Society doesn't need a political solution, doesn't need an environmental solution. What we need most is not a social solution. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus broke through into our broken world and he stretched out his arms and he lifted up his voice and he cried out in the temple. He opened the scroll to Isaiah 61. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And since that day, 
Every human being that has tried to fix their situations in their life, the brokenness and their, their, the guilt from their sin, every person who's tried to fix it apart from Christ, it's because their eyes have not been fixed on Christ. Because they're looking here, they're looking there, they're looking everywhere, but at the center of where their solution is to be found. And the genealogy of Jesus points to the reality that the grace of God has come for sinners. Come for sinners. And so my question to you is this. Are your eyes fixed on him? All the eyes and all the eyes. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Are your eyes fixed on the only one who can save? The only one who can open your blind eyes and can set free those who are oppressed? And all the eyes, the eyes of all were fixed on him. Behold, Emmanuel. Behold, look, look to him. See him. Praise him. Worship him. Surrender to him. Are your eyes fixed on Christ, the God who broke into a dark and a sinful world? The God who calls on everyone to behold him, to look to him. So what can we learn from a genealogy filled with broken sinners and one perfect Savior? What can we learn? can learn that God's purposes are always at work even when we can't see it or perceive it. That's what we can learn. So I just want to tell you, hang on. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up when you think God's abandoned me. I don't know where he's at. I, I, I never saw this coming. God knew it was coming. He's still at work in your life. He's a keeper of his promises. He keeps covenant with his people from generation to generation to a thousand generations. The seemingly slow and imperceptible purposes of God, God is at work even when you can't see it, even when you can't perceive it. Stay faithful. Stay the course. The harvest is coming. What else can we learn? Here's a question. What are we celebrating at Christmas time? What are we celebrating at Christmas time? Here's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the grace of God. That the grace of God has come down towards prostitutes and kings, and everyone in between. That's what Christmas is all about. That the grace of God has come from Adam to Christ, down through the generations, to you and to me, to prostitutes and to kings and to everyone in between. So from the highest of the highest to the lowest of the low, from the, from, from the sophisticated sinners to those who have no sophistication and go headlong in it, and everyone in between, those who try to manage their sin and manage their rebellion against God and look, look like they're not really sinning, to everybody, everyone in between, the grace of God has come. Or I should say the title of my message at the end, the king of grace is here. Amen. The king of grace is here. Aren't you grateful for that grace?